0: Turning your Bibles to Genesis 12, Genesis chapter 12, if you're using the Red Pew Bible, that'll be on page 10. Page 10, as I've joked before, it's a little discouraging. We're this far into our Genesis study and we're only at page 10. You know, it's a little, but anyway, there's a lot there. It's a rich, rich teaching. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We'll come back to that and read that in just a moment. <clears throat> Logicians, those who teach us about logic, have this funny little uh, question they will ask to help instruct us in logic. The question that's been used for decades is this one. Have you stopped beating your wife? It's a loaded question. It's a classic logical problem. Have you stopped beating your wife? You see, the question is framed in a dichotomous way. There are only two possible answers, yes or no. To answer the question is to give a yes or no. But either way, you come off looking pretty bad. Either you say, yes, I've stopped beating my wife, meaning you did once upon time beat your wife, or no, I have not, which means you're even worse and you're still beating her. Logicians point out that that is what's called a false dichotomy, creating a situation which appears to have only two answers when in fact there are other possibilities. Obviously, the other possibility here is that apart from the game of cribbage, I do not beat my wife. See how I work that in there? You like that? Apart from the game of cribbage, I do not beat my wife. There is another possible answer and response. Framing it up as a yes or a no is a false dichotomy. Our world is full of false dichotomies. Advertisers are really good at this. Use our skincare products or look old. Well, there might be other ways. Maybe I can use your competitor's products. Maybe I can get plastic surgery. There might be other ways. Perhaps I have found the fountain of youth. Teenagers are masters of the false dichotomy. Mom, if you love me, you'll let me go to the party. Maybe, just maybe, the angry teenager has not comprehended that mom is keeping you from the party out of her love for you our world is full of false dichotomies. Unfortunately, so too is our theology. Our theology has way too many false dichotomies, either-or statements that ignore or gloss over a third or fourth or fifth way to address the question at hand. In some false dichotomies, the correct answer isn't either-or, but both-and. In the early years of Christianity, this was a false dichotomy. Either Jesus was a man or he was God. The correct response is to reject that as a false dichotomy. He is not either man or God. He is both man and God. It was a false dichotomy. Here's another false dichotomy we continue to wrestle with today. Either God is sovereign or humans have free will. Nope. False dichotomy. God has sovereignly given men and women freedom of choice. In what is a mystery to me, God sovereignly works in and through our free will. It's not either or, but both and. Other false dichotomies cause problems in life, and they cause serious errors in our theology, but they are not uh, 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 both and solutions, but rather there is a third way altogether that rejects the either or situation. Today, we look at one false dichotomy. Our sermon title, if you're looking there in the, uh, the bulletin, our sermon title sums up the question before us. Works, meritorious or meaningless? Works, are they meritorious or are they meaningless? That is a false dichotomy. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to circle the sermon title, put a big old star next to it, an arrow pointing at it, and in big bold letters say, false dichotomy. We're going to find out that it's not one or the other. It's not that they are meritorious or meaningless, but that there is a different view the Bible has altogether. This dichotomy, this false dichotomy, has led to all kinds of problems throughout church history. On one side, you have the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. To go to heaven, one must do a certain minimum amount of good works. You must have faith and a certain amount of good works in order to merit eternal life with God. This is the view that has given rise to the doctrine of purgatory. Unbelievers, Unbelievers go directly to hell upon death. Believers who have accumulated enough merit through their works, Mother Teresa, the Apostle Peter, those sorts of people, they go directly into heaven upon death. But what about those in between? Believers who have not acquired enough merit through their good works. Thus the doctrine of purgatory was born. They go there. And they await one of two things. Either somebody upon the earth will do works on their behalf thus the selling of indulgences during the Middle Ages that gave rise to the Protestant Reformation. Either somebody, there, somebody on earth will do good works on their behalf or they suffer long enough that that suffering becomes meritorious for them and they are then allowed into heaven. So on the Roman Catholic side of things, you have this view that it's faith and enough good works to merit eternal life. We should reject That view. That view is wrong. However, too many Protestants over the centuries have been careless about how they reject that view. It's right to reject works as meritorious for salvation, but it is wrong to go to the other extreme and and, and reject that view by saying that the good works of believers are meaningless. To say that good works do not matter is also wrong. To say that our works have no value is inaccurate and unbiblical. When we reduce the question of good works to being merely a question of do our works merit salvation or are they meaningless, we have reduced it to a false dichotomy. You see, the Bible says no to both positions. Do our works merit salvation? No. Loudly, boldly, emphatically, forcefully, the Bible is absolutely clear on this. Our works do not merit salvation. Paul said it this way, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not by works. Moses wrote this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Habakkuk who was then quoted by Paul and the author of Hebrews, Habakkuk said it this way, the righteous shall live by faith. On the question, do our works play any part in earning salvation for us? Do they merit our redemption in any way? The biblical answer is a resounding no. But that is not to say that they are meaningless. It's false to swing to that position. Just as the Bible slams the door on the meritorious nature of our good works, our obedience, um, so also it resonates with proclamations of the importance of our works. The Bible simply pulses with an emphasis upon obedience and good works. The same Moses who wrote that Abraham was justified by faith alone also wrote the Ten Commandments and taught Israel to obey them. The same Paul, who stressed that we are justified apart from works of the law, turned right around and said, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. And the same author of Hebrews, who quoted Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, also wrote, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a powerful rebuttal of the meaninglessness of our works. And it was no less an authority on salvation than our Lord himself who said the following in the Sermon on the Mount. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments And teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know, what do you think? Do good works and obedience and righteousness matter? Do they have meaning? sounds like they do. Works, making them either meritorious or meaningless, is a false dichotomy. Our good deeds, our obedience, are not meritorious, nor are they meaningless. Our works have tremendous, phenomenal meaning, yet they do not in any way earn one iota of merit. So what do we do? Here at the Shore Harvest Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice, not the traditions of the Roman church, nor the overreactions of Protestants. Only God's word is the infallible rule for faith and for practice. So to him, to those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now what follows, as we saw last week, is good news. It's the gospel and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Recall two weeks ago we considered the missteps and failures of Abraham's walk of faith. He was to leave behind his father's house, but here we see his nephew Lot going with him, lacking a legal heir. It appears that Abram and Sarai are adopting Lot to be that legal heir. A couple of weeks, we'll see how that turns out. Anyway, continuing now in verse 4, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Look back for a moment at verse 6. Abraham passed through the land. Having explored the land, God is now reaffirming his promise to Abram. Yes, this is the land I was speaking of. This land that you are exploring. This is the place I am giving to your descendants verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Contrast Abram's worship in this verse with our approach to worship. This could be a wonderful sermon all on its own, but alas, we're going to have to handle it briefly. We tend to ask, what am I getting out of this worship service? I didn't really like the music. The the sermon didn't speak to my felt needs. That's not Abram's approach. Rather, Abram, having received the gospel, having received the good news that God was going to do for him. In response to that, Abram worships so as to give to God, to respond to God, not to get more from God. Do we get from worship? Absolutely we do. But what we get ought not be our motivation or the benchmark against which we evaluate worship. Ask not what you can get out of a worship service, but having gotten from the Lord, ask what and how you can put into the worship service. Not could this song selection have been more to my liking, but rather how can I lend my voice and or talents to making our singing better? Not I wish the sermon had said this or that, but rather how can I respond to what was said from God's word this morning. How can I love God more, glorify him better? Abram did not worship to get, but having gotten, he worshiped. Verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Bethel means house of God and this city will become second only to Jerusalem in its importance in Israelite Old Testament history. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Negev is sometimes Negev with a V. The B and the V are kind of interchangeable when you bring it into English. Uh, This is the southernmost portion of Palestine, the desert region uh, uh, south and west of the Dead Sea. The point here is that Abram uh, explored the full length of the Promised Land. He went and explored all that God had promised to him. Let's pray and ask the Spirit's guidance as we explore this. Lord, show us... The message of this text, or at least one of its messages, show us the relationship that's set forth here between faith and good works, between the call of your gospel and the response of our obedience. Let us understand that it's not that our works are meaningless or that they're meritorious, yet altogether a different way to understand how these works matter. We pray this In Christ's name, amen. You gotta love grandmas. Going to grandma's house as a kid was the best. You're playing outside, maybe on the swing set, maybe in the sandbox, but the the point was this. You're a kid without a care in the world, you're at grandma's house, and then it gets better. Scotty! Oh, by the way, Grandma Shaw called me Scotty, and ain't none of you, Grandma Shaw. Okay? Okay? Scotty, I just baked chocolate chip cookies and I've got plenty of milk. Come on inside. Wow, that's good news. That may not be the gospel, but it is a gospel. (laughs) That's good news to a little kid out there playing in the yard. Now, I'm going to give you a moment to bask in your fond memories of grandma, but I need to take that happy time and put it to work. We're not going to ruin it or destroy it for you, but we are going to put it to work. Take a moment to dissect the scene we just painted. Ask yourself this question Did I do anything to earn those cookies and milk? Did Grandma make those cookies in response to anything I said or did? Was Grandma bound? to make those cookies by some request I made? Of course not. They came not because of any worth or merit in me, rather those cookies flowed out of and were emblematic of Grandma's love. That's it. Full stop. The good news of the cookies came from Grandma's love for me and only Grandma's love. For me, I did nothing to bring about those cookies in any way, shape, or form. I miss Grandma Shaw. <laughs> so we've established that I did nothing to bring about the good news of fresh baked cookies and ice cold milk. But does that mean there was nothing I had to do? Well, no, it doesn't, does it? To realize those cookies in a real and meaningful way, to actually feast upon those cookies, I had to climb out of the sandbox, brush off the sand, make a dash into the kitchen. Nothing I said or did or thought or asked for merited the good news of cookies, yet my actions were far from meaningless. Look at Genesis 12.1. There's a great deal we might unpack in Genesis 12.1. I want to begin with some interesting and important linguistic grammatical structures there. For example, the word go. The original Hebrew, it's actually repeated emphatically. It's not just lek, go, but it is lek, laka. Go yourself. Get going. Get up and go different translations have tried to bring it home in different ways. But it is repeated. Go, go! The point is, this is not an optional thing. This is not something that Abram can do or not do. But rather, it is an absolute command given by God to Abram. And so what we see is that right from the get-go, The good news to Abram is tied up and intertwined with a command to Abram. Even before the gospel was given, a command was issued. We've got to remind ourselves that news is not and need not be mere information. It often can and does include information that requires a response. The good news to Abram was only life-changing news if he acted upon it. Does anyone, for even a moment, believe that if Abram had stayed in Ur, given verbal consent to faith, yes, Yahweh, I I believe that you prepared a place for me and have called me and you're going to bless my offspring, I believe all of that, but then stayed in Ur, worshipping the moon goddess, Do we believe for a moment he would have been saved? Is there anyone, anywhere who believes that? No one does. Abram's going did not merit the good news of God's salvation, but it was part and parcel with it. Now, at this point, I'm making some of you very nervous, and that's a good thing. That means you're listening and you're thinking. You're saying to yourself, Pastor, That feels like you're saying our works are a necessary part of salvation, and I thought it was by grace alone through faith alone. That's a good point. That's a great point. Before we go any further, let's look at two really important passages of the gospel proclamation in the New Testament. Turn over, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1. Mark 1, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. Mark, as you probably are aware, is the the briefest and most concise of the um, gospel writers. And here we have his uh, brief, concise, introductory statement about the ministry of Jesus upon the earth. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus does not merely say, give intellectual assent to to certain truths or certain facts. Rather, he told people to act on what they believe by turning away from sin. To repent means to make a U-turn, to do 180, a full turnaround. And about-face. To repent is to turn away from what you were doing and to turn to something new. How do we see it in our catechism this morning? Repentance. In a repentance, a sinner with grief and hatred of his sin turns from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. As Jesus is preaching, he's calling people to repentance. In this context, it's to turn away from a life of sin and unbelief and to turn to Jesus in submission and faith. When our Lord proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed repentance and faith. Now flip forward in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. We'll be looking. We'll begin in verse thirty-seven, Acts two, verse thirty-seven. This is uh, uh, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. You remember the the situation. Um, Peter has proclaimed the historic truths. He's kind of given a summary of Jesus coming and being killed and rising from the dead. And we pick up in verse thirty-seven, and the crowd is responding to Peter. Verse thirty-seven. Now, when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now pay attention closely to what Peter says. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The first thing that jumps out at us is the glaring omission of any mention of faith. It's like Peter doesn't understand how to evangelize. It's like Peter doesn't understand how the gospel works. But look down to verse 44, same chapter. Skim down to verse 44. Now Luke is writing and reflecting on what happened. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Those whom Peter called to repentance, Luke described as believers. Those whom Peter called to turn away from a life of sin, Luke describes as those who now have faith. You see, in the mind of the New Testament writers, those two could not be distinguished. To have faith is to repent, and true repentance can only come in those who have faith. We cannot separate the two. And that is precisely what we see going on in Abram's life. Back to Genesis 12. I should have told you to keep your finger there, sorry. Back to Genesis 12. This relationship between faith and repentance is precisely what we see happening in Abram's life. God is declaring good news to Abram. I am going to bless you. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to multiply your offering. I'm doing it all for you, Abram. And that's good news. That's gospel. But all of that followed God's command. Get up. Go out of your country. Away from your people. Leave your father's household. In other words, turn away from your life of pagan idol worship and turn to me. It would be a fitting summary of Genesis 12.1 to say God spoke to Abram and said, repent and believe. That's the call here. The good news which Abram was to believe was delivered in the middle of a command he was to obey. Faith and repentance are intertwined for Abram just as they were in Peter's Pentecost sermon, just as they were in Jesus's earthly ministry. Think of it this way maybe. If you go to grandma's house and she says, come inside, I have fresh baked cookies for you, that's good news. That's gospel, not the gospel, but for the sake of our illustration, it is gospel, good news. Come inside, I have fresh baked cookies for you. Now, was there anything you did or could have done to earn those cookies? No, we've we've, we've covered that. Grandma doesn't say, if you come inside, I will bake cookies. No, the cookies are baked. The work is done By the way, whether you believe it or not. But the good news becomes real to you and meaningful to you when you respond to it by going inside. The good news of the cookies begins to change and impact your life for the better when you respond to it rightly. It is in turning away from your play and turning toward Grandma's call that the good news is apprehended. Thus, your obedient repentance did not merit the cookies in any way, but neither was that obedience meaningless. God says to Abram, go, get going. In faith, Abram goes. But some of you will say, Pastor, that's saying that Abram had to obey to receive. He had to do, He to get. He had to earn, at least in some small part, his salvation. And I understand why it feels that way, but pay close attention, and we'll see that it's not that way. Goodness, which is acceptable to God, goodness which hits the mark, goodness which might be meritorious in God's sight, is absolute, perfect, goodness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, John tells us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The thrice holy God, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the God of pure pureness and perfect perfection, requires purity and perfection. Now I ask you, did even Abraham achieve that? The answer is a resounding no. We've already seen how he failed over and over and over again. Abraham was told to go, get going. He only sort of went. He left Ur, but he didn't go to Canaan as he was told. He stopped in Haran. And he's told to leave his father's house But he took his father in that house with him to Haran. And he's told to leave his kindred, but he adopts Lot. And told that God would give him a seed, he procured offspring through a mistress and concubines and the slave woman. There is not one thing about Abram's obedience which was pure and perfect. Thus, there is not one thing about Abram's obedience which in any way merited God's goodness toward him. So Abram's works were not meritorious in any way, in any shape, in any form. And yet they were far from meaningless. They mattered, and they mattered immensely. I hope you are starting to see the problem of the false dichotomy. Are works meritorious, or are they meaningless? No and no. Our works have meaning. They have importance, but they are not. Meritorious. Following back to 12.1, following the emphatic go get going, lek le- additional linguistic tools are used in the Hebrew that don't always come through in the English. There's this alliteration and uh, sounds, uh, a, a literal translation might go like this Go get going from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. Most English Bibles don't repeat the from you, but it's there in Hebrew each time. And it creates this alliterating list that kind of drive home the point. Notice the narrowing focus as well. Abram, you must leave behind your country, the comfort of the familiar. No longer will you enjoy the cuisine that you've come to love. Chaldean comfort food is not going to be available any longer. Leave your country. What Abraham uh, 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 did was going to matter. He was called to go be a stranger in a strange land, a sojourner in faith to God. From your kindred, not only must you repent of the corrupt culture in which you reside, you must also turn from those in your life who would drag you back into that sin. Your sister-in-law, Milcah, is named after the moon goddess repent get away from that family that was kindred and the influences they're going to have on you abram's works mattered if he was going to be free from the influences of sin from your father's house Jesus says it even more harshly. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Repent, Abram, even of the earthly bonds of family. Your father, Terah, is a pagan. And you have to leave him behind. Repent. Repent. Okay, so in order to be saved, Abram had to do, no, that's not it. That's headed down the wrong path. That leads to a doctrine of meritorious works, earning some part and place in the good news of redemption. Okay, okay, so God proclaimed good news to Abram, so he had to do nothing. No, that's also problematic. Also headed in the wrong direction. And at this point, we're exasperated, and we're saying, what is going on? And we're reminded that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram's good works, such as they were, did not put him in good standing with God. His faith did. But that faith must necessarily and inescapably produce good works. Paul spoke of the fruit of the Spirit, that which is produced in the life of the believer. If you have the Spirit, you will have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we read in our New Testament reading, Jesus stressed that if you love him, you will obey him and keep his commandments. Martin Luther summed all of this up brilliantly in his commentary on the book of Galatians when he wrote this. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. We are saved through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone alone. Again, let Grandma Shaw's house be our illustration. The good news of fresh-baked cookies came entirely from Grandma's love, apart from anything in me. Yet she called me to respond in obedience. Scotty, come inside. I have fresh-baked cookies. So any obedience on my part was not meritorious in any way. More than that, any obedience on my part stemmed from the faith I had. I believed Grandma. I was convinced there were cookies. And so I repented of the sandbox and turned and ran inside. My works did not bring about the cookies. My faith did not bring about the cookies. Grandma's cookies and her declaration of it to me produced faith in me. It began with grandma. And out of her love for me, I then had faith that there were cookies. And out of that flowed what I did. This is why the beloved disciple John would say, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he resides in God ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. The relationship between faith and obedience is why Jesus' younger brother James would point to good works as a diagnostic tool for invisible faith. James said, just as a body without breath is dead, you come up to a body, it's laying on the ground, how do you check for life? You can't. Life is an invisible quality. How do you evaluate it? How do you diagnose? Are they breathing? Just as the body without breath is dead, so faith without works is dead. Faith is also an invisible quality, but the outward diagnostic tool is works. True inward invisible faith will always produce outward obedience. That obedience will be in this life marred by sin, as Abrams was, so it can never be meritorious. But neither is it meaningless. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Hebrews said, strive for holiness without which no one will see God. And Jesus said to the disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's never pit good works and the gospel against one another, for the latter will always produce the former. The gospel produces good works. They're not at odds with each other. The one is the cause of the other. Back to Genesis 12, going on in verses 7, 8, and 9, they describe how Abram explored the land and worshipped as a result. And we touched on that a little earlier. It is interesting that we have, we, we have no record of Abram worshiping based only upon the call of God. We have no record of Abram worshiping only because he heard the good news. Abram worshiped when that call, when that good news began to take effect in his life, when it began to produce in him repentance and a change of pathway, when he began to follow The Lord. It was upon exploring the land and seeing for himself, apprehending for himself the reality of the good news, that he builds altars and calls upon the name of Yahweh. Worship came once the walk of faith had begun. And who among us, having lived a long time and experienced much, apprehending your sin all the better and God's grace all the more, does not worship more fully, more richly, more deeply. When I was the headmaster at the Christian school, the teachers and I would sometimes be concerned that we couldn't get the kids to sing in the in the chapel services. We, we couldn't get them to express the worship. I and mean, it dawned on us, they, their short little 14, 15, 16-year lives haven't experienced the gospel, haven't absorbed the grace of God. They haven't understood their sin and how much it hurts and how rich the, 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 the grace of God must be to overcome that. Worship flows out of the, uh, of the experience of walking in faith. Abram explored the promises of God to him. And out of that came his worship. Have you been looking forward to all that the gospel promises you? Have you abandoned your country, your kindred, and even your father's house? In doing so, will you not find a desperate need for the gospel to be a comfort to you? Will you not then call upon the name of the Lord even more there's a reason that worship attendance is better among the older it's always been that way the older have more reason to sing because they have walked in obedience and apprehended for themselves the promise promises of god abram's obedience did not save him but abram's obedience was the impetus to worship out of God's good news, Abram's faith sprang up, and out of this faith came his obedience and good works. And having obeyed in faith, worship sprang forth. It is false to say our works merit the gospel in any way, but it is equally false upon that basis to declare them meaningless. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But it is impossible that faith would exist without the accompanying obedience. Look at it this way. Last week I mentioned the pastor who had challenged his congregation to spend a few weeks looking at at themselves, examining themselves. How do you respond to confrontation? How do you respond to uh, uh, somebody saying that you're not good enough or that you don't uh, uh, have enough, uh, 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 you haven't done enough? How do you respond to somebody questioning you? Do you point to the thing, I taught Sunday school for X years. I helped every summer in VBS. I did... You're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in your own good works. You need to say, you're right, I'm badly broken. But Jesus isn't. And I have him. You say, well, Pastor, now you're back to saying the good works don't matter. But... When out of love for Jesus, we begin to strive to do the works. What's going to happen? We're going to fall like Abram fell. We're going to take a lot with us that we shouldn't have taken with us. And we're going to recognize that eventually as sin. And we're going to be even more astounded at the grace of God. And then we're going to strive more to do what is right and to obey And we're going to trip and fall again, having a child by Hagar rather than trusting the Lord to provide through Sarah. And we're going to be struck by the goodness and grace of God and amazed at the gospel he has promised and worship more fully and be motivated to try again. And the process of evaluating ourselves and looking at ourselves isn't going to drive us, not if we do it correctly and honestly, it isn't going to drive us to confidence in ourselves, just the opposite. It's going to continually remind us of how marred our good works are. And yet if we sit around and do nothing and say our good works don't matter, they are meaningless, John and James would say that means... We don't have Christ at all. Our good works are not meritorious, but neither are they meaningless. We must understand they are important. They do matter, but not as a procurement for the grace of God, but rather As the evidence that his grace is at work in us. As the realization of that grace to us. As the comfort in us that we really have him. Are works meritorious or are they meaningless? Neither. They are not meaningless, though they are not meritorious. We must never... the gospel against good works as if those two are somehow at odds with each other. It's a both... We have the gospel apart from our works and we have good works because of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, this is a tough subject and it is so easy to go wrong on it. It is so easy to to slip up and say it inaccurately. And it's for that reason and many others that we are grateful that you are gracious, that you will forgive our missteps in doctrine and theology, that you do not save us because of our academic excellence. You do not uh, save us because of the perfection with which we can declare doctrine. And yet, Lord, when we do understand these doctrines, it does produce in us a desire to proclaim your glory, a desire to declare your goodness to us. And so, Lord, as we contemplate this question of works, we realize how flawed and marred our works are. And so we come running to the grace of Jesus. And seeing that grace and seeing his command in our lives to obey, we want to be renewed to go back out in faithful obedience. Thank you that we can know we have Christ. And in knowing we have him, we can put forth an effort to please him. And in putting forth that effort to please him, we know we are going to fail. But we have Christ. What a beautiful relationship you have created between the gospel and and faith, and good works. We praise you for this. In Christ's name, amen.